Welcome to New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. Today, Pastor Randy welcomes to the pulpit Patrick Moran, our Director of Adult Ministries. I have an overarching question that I'd like you all to keep in mind as we're going through this. And that question is, what child is this? We're gonna look at a child, we're gonna look at a king, we're gonna look at insecurities, but I want you to be thinking about what child is this? Turn in your Bible now to Matthew chapter two. Here's Patrick. Now this morning we're gonna be in Matthew chapter two. If you have a Bible, if you need a Bible, I don't know if we're passing them out, but Matthew chapter two, if you wanna flip there. Uh, a quick story to get us started. I had the opportunity to go to Dollywood a couple of weeks ago. I'd never been to Dollywood in my life, but my wife told me that it's like a country version of Six Flags, or like a polite version of Six Flags, right? Like <laughs> everybody there wants to help you and everybody, and, and things are like inexpensive there too. I got a hot dog for like seven bucks. You can't get that at Six Flags. <laughs> I got a beanie for 10 bucks. You can't get that at Six Flags. Um, and we got to do a lot of fun things, got to see some really cool shows. There was, I got to see my first uh, vocal quartet that I'd ever seen, and that was really cool. They actually sang gospel songs. They sang about Jesus, and it was amazing. They had this shirt that my wife bought me that said, Jesus is enough, that has the gospel on the back. I was like, I didn't know that this existed in like an amusement park for Jesus, right? Um, and the guy who was singing bass, his bass was so low, they actually shook the whole auditorium, and that was just an incredible experience to be a part of that. But we, we got to see a lot of other shows as well. And one show was about this girl. It's all about Santa Claus, right? And it was about this girl who, her brother was in the Navy. She was like eight or nine. Her brother was in the Navy. Her sister was out at college. Neither of them could get home for Christmas. And so she's wishing and wishing and wishing to Santa Claus to bring her siblings home for Christmas because she wanted to be with her brother and sister. And eventually they do end up coming home and she gives all her thanks and all her praise to, to Santa Claus. And it just reminds me, the whole premise of the show was that Santa was the reason for all joy and all kindness and all happiness and all good things in this world. It was incredibly eye-opening that the world is constantly searching for things that will bring them hope and they're searching in the wrong place. They're searching for something that explains happiness, for something that explains kindness but we have the answer to that. We actually have the answer to that. And his name is Jesus Christ. Ours is a hope and the one who never fails and is constant and reigns on his throne forever. That is our hope, not in Santa Claus. Let this serve as a reminder that the world will always try to downplay. The world will always try to demean the true meaning of this season. They will always try to make Christmas about consumerism or Santa Claus or just joy and happiness when the true joy is Jesus Christ. And this season is about the birth of Jesus. Let us always remember Christ. So as we begin this morning, I have an overarching question that I'd like you all to keep in mind as we're going through this. And that question is, what child is this? We're gonna look at a child, we're gonna look at a king, we're gonna look at insecurities, but I want you to be thinking about what child is this? So Matthew chapter two, starting at verse one, if y'all read with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, king, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, or written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There is a lot to unpack here. And I, I pray, I was praying this morning and I pray now that God will reveal something from his word through this preaching that I am just a tool here. And as you leave here, you'll, you'll look at Jesus and not me. First, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Herod was a king and wise men had come to Jerusalem. Now, last week we saw the conception of John the Baptist, which was not immaculate. It was a natural conception. And we saw the, the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ in Mary. And Matthew describes the events as well as Luke did, surrounding the Immaculate Conception in chapter one of his gospel. And we even learn in that chapter what Jesus came to do. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream after Joseph wanted to break his and Mary's betrothal. He wasn't doing this because he fell out of love with Mary. He was doing this because they had never known each other in the biblical sense, yet Mary was pregnant. And so he wanted to break their betrothal quietly. He was a nice guy. Matthew chapter one, verse 20 and 21, the angel speaking here says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What an amazing statement of hope that the birth of Jesus, it says, he will save his people from their sins. I wanna take a moment to talk about Jesus's name and Jesus's person and how he got here. So Jesus is an English rendering of the Greek word Iesus, which is a translation of the ancient Hebrew Yehoshua. We know of another famous Yehoshua in the Bible. In fact, an entire book is named after him, and that's Joshua. Now, the name Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Matthew explains to us in, one, in chapter one, verse 23, that the virgin birth of Christ happened to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So Jesus' name itself means God is salvation. And Jesus himself is the Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God come down in the flesh. This is known as the condescension of Christ. Now, when we hear this word condescending, we usually think about somebody who thinks they're high and mighty and they're talking down to us, right? They're trying to degrade us. They're speaking to us condescendingly. But this condescension of Christ is actually Jesus, the high and mighty one, coming down to earth to take on our flesh. Now, Paul gives us a glimpse into this condescension in Philippians chapter two. He says, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus assumed our nature. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came down from immeasurable glory and perfect union with the Father in heaven to take on human flesh. A.W. Pink, who wrote in the early 20th century, he tells us that supreme dignity and supreme glory belong to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul as he was writing that verse in Philippians 2 to remind us of the unfathomable depths of condescension and humiliation into which God descended for our sake. The whole nature of God is in Christ and that by Jesus, God is declared and expressed to us. From eternity, the son was clothed with all the insignia of deity, insignia of deity, adorned with all divine splendor. The word was God. It was truly remarkable when man was made in the image of God, Jesus 1, uh, Genesis 1.26. But bow in wonderment and worship at the amazing condescension of God being made in the image of man. How this manifests the greatness of his love and the riches of his grace. It was for his people and their salvation that the eternal son assumed human nature and abased himself even to death. He drew a veil over his glory that he might remove our reproach. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. And this, this incarnation and condescension can be seen throughout our hymns that we sing. So I want you to hear this verse from the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. It says, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. And we're gonna see this scorning, not just in his public ministry, not just in his crucifixion, but he was scorned in his birth. I also want you to hear this, this other verse from another modern hymn. It says, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. It's important to note here that Jesus in his incarnation, he's not 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% man, 100% God, fully God, fully man. We must be cautious not to diminish either his humanity or his divinity. If we worship a Jesus that is God and not man, or if we worship a Jesus that is man and not God, we are not worshiping the Jesus of scripture. The only one who can save us from our sin is the sinless God-man one who is fully man as we are, but one who is fully God so that his payment for our sin can satisfy the infinite demands of God's justice against that sin. So we've seen Jesus, we've seen his condescension. Matthew mentions that he was born in Bethlehem. What's significant about that? Bethlehem is a Hebrew word that means house of bread. How fitting that our savior, the one who calls himself the bread of life, was born in a city called the house of bread. It was a very small town in southern Israel, and his great claim to fame was that King David had been born there. Other than that, nothing happened in Bethlehem. And if we look back at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, we'll see that Jesus comes from David's line. He's in the Davidic line. So King David was born in Bethlehem, and the one from David's roots will reign forever. Bethlehem is called the city of David elsewhere in Scripture, notably in the Gospel of Luke. So we've seen Jesus, we've seen his condescension, we've seen Bethlehem, 
Now it's time to examine King Herod. Who is this guy? Matthew tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of King Herod. So who was this man, this king, this Herod? He was the first in a long line of Herods. He had uh, come to be known Herod the Great, and he was also known as King of the Jews. Now history bestowed on him the name of Herod the Great, but as we'll see, he was far from it. Even though he was called King of the Jews, he wasn't actually a Jew himself. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. We remember Esau is the twin brother of Jacob who sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Jacob became the father of the Israelites and Esau became the father of the Edomites. And for millennia, the Edomites hated the Israelites. They even practiced pagan religions in their own country. So if he wasn't Jewish, how did he become king of the Jews? Herod was incredibly ambitious politically. He and his father were loyal to the Romans. In fact, he was crowned king of Judea by the Romans, not by the Jews. And he actually impressed the Romans by his ability to pacify the Jewish population. That's all the Romans cared about was peace in their country. And Herod was the man to get the job done to quelch any uprisings. That was a, that was a questionable word in the first service. Is quelch a word? Okay, quelch. To put down an uprising. Good. Okay. <laughs> We're learning here this morning. Herod became a great builder. He rebuilt the Jewish temple, but not out of any personal piety. He wasn't doing this because he actually loved God. He did this because he wanted to outwardly show that he was kind to the Jewish population. Herod would become a paranoid tyrant. He became angry that the Jews could trace their lineage to one of the 12 tribes. So he went to the Sanhedrin. He had all their records burned so nobody could trace their lineage farther back than he could. He was afraid that nobody would mourn him in his death. So he imprisoned a bunch of Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, with the instructions to his guard that should he die, they are to kill all of those Pharisees so that at least someone in Israel is mourning. He married 10 women. He fathered 15 children by them. He executed two of his sons because of rumors of mutiny. He even instructed his guards that if something should happen to him, they are to kill his favorite wife out of fear that she might meet another man after his death. He would end up having her executed himself because he didn't like the way she backtalked him after he killed her parents. This man is the definition of insecurity. And this man was on the throne at the birth of Jesus. It's easy for us to look at Herod and judge him as an insecure man who was power hungry and paranoid. It's easy for us to look at Herod and say, I wouldn't have done those things. I'm better than Herod. But we need to keep in mind that while Herod was king of a physical kingdom, and as we'll see, he was only acting in self-defense of someone coming to kick him off his throne, we can see glimpses of ourselves and our own insecurities in Herod, thinking that we are rulers of our own metaphorical kingdoms, thinking that we are rulers in our own lives. But before we are quick to our judgments of him, we need to remember what Paul says about our human nature in Romans. He's quoting David, and he tells us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So while we can and should judge Herod on his evil, whenever evil is committed, we, are, we need to be calling it out as Christians. But we also need to remember that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Before our own conversions, we were no better than Herod. And we shouldn't see ourselves as better than anybody. We should keep a look at our fallen state, knowing that we came from the same place that Herod did. 
It takes an incredible act of God to bring us to a place of faith, belief, and submission to the true king to kick us each off of our own thrones. And thanks be to God that he's gracious and merciful and does kick us off of our own thrones. I make a terrible God. I make a terrible king. Thank God Jesus is my king. The second question I wanna pose this morning is are we ready for Jesus past our own insecurities? And we're gonna look at that in Herod. But back to our passage here. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. A note on Matthew's inclusion of the Magi, the wise men, some of your Bibles might even say stargazers. A note on his inclusion of them. You see, each, each gospel writer wrote to a specific audience. Matthew was Jewish and he wrote to a Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Mark was writing to prove that Jesus was the son of man, the servant who came to, uh, to bring forth the kingdom. John wrote to, to expose the divinity of Jesus. And Luke was a Gentile who wrote to the Gentiles to explain to them that salvation is available to all men. So it's important when we read these gospels that we understand who they were writing to. So Matthew is Jewish. He wrote to the Jews. And Luke is a Gentile writing to the Gentiles. Writing to the Gentiles. But see, Matthew the Jew writes about the wise men, the Gentiles, the pagans who are coming to worship Jesus. And as we saw last week in Luke, those shepherds were Jewish. So Luke the Gentile writes about the Jewish shepherds, but Matthew the Jew writes about the Gentile pagans. It's fascinating. God continues to break down the ethnic barriers that we like to construct. Now these wise men, these magis, they are always included in our nativity scenes, right? We always have three magi, we have three shepherds, we have Joseph, Mary, Jesus, probably an angel, maybe some camels and a donkey, right? <laughs> we actually don't know how many wise men there were. I hate to break, or I hate to burst your nativity bubble, but the Bible does not tell us how many wise men there were. And the wise men came when Jesus was probably a year and a half old. The shepherds came when Jesus was born. But we put them together in the nativity scene. That's all right. You can, it's not heresy to do that. You're welcome to do that. <laughs> what we do know about these wise men is that they traveled from the east, most likely Babylon or Persia, which was once a land of exile for the Jews. And Matthew calls them magi in, in some of our translations. These were astrologers, stargazers, men who searched for wisdom by the interpretation of movement of the stars and the planets. And they would have been familiar with Jewish prophecy, because there was a, a remnant of Jews left over in Babylon after the return of the Jews after the exile. The prophecy they are most likely familiar with that sent them on their way was that of Numbers 24, 17 that says, a star shall come out of Jacob. Some have attempted to explain this star as a natural phenomenon, but stars do not move and stars do not show you, do not stop over the birthplace of someone like it did with Jesus. This was a supernatural act of God. Now, when they got to Jerusalem, they asked Herod, the king of the Jews, or they asked Herod where the king of the Jews was to be born. Of all people to ask, they asked the king of the Jews where the king of the Jews was to be born. They didn't know that he was a paranoid tyrant. Sometimes when we are seeking the truth, and we ask questions to ascertain that truth, the reaction of those in power tells us a lot about their character. 
The fact that pagans and astrologers came to search for the Messiah should not be taken as license for us to practice astrology. And I know in middle school and high school, you guys are dealing with people who are probably talking to you about your horoscopes. Don't engage with it. God specifically demands that we do not engage with astrology. Astrology, divination, and interpretation of omens is strictly forbidden by God in Deuteronomy 18. But what this should be seen as is the fact that God used a supernatural star to guide these magi to the newly born Messiah should be seen as a sign that God is bringing redemption even to the Gentiles and the pagans. What a beautiful symbol of hope in our world today. It was an incredible act uh, of grace, an incredible display of grace. God descending to use the Magi's pagan superstitions to draw them back to Jesus. These pagans had come to Judea to worship the true king. And Herod was troubled by this. He knew he wasn't a legitimate ruler. He wasn't even Jewish. So in verses four, five, and six, he gathers the scholars, the scribes, the priests, and he asks where the child will be born. They reply with a well-known prophecy of the prophet Micah that says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's interesting to note that these scribes and these priests, they're the same ones who will reject Jesus and his divinity during Jesus' public ministry. These are the same ones that told Herod where Jesus was to be born. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. Herod was trying to find out when the star appeared because he wanted to know the age of the child. This is gonna come in, back into play later on. The Magi, or Herod's lie about wanting to worship the, tri, uh, the child is indicative of his political deviousness. He just wanted to know, where's this person who might have some power? As we'll see later, Herod intends not to bow to the king, but to kill him. The Magi then head on their way again seeing the star that would guide them and they rejoice with great joy. And I know that scripture is perfect and scripture is complete, but I really wish there was an exclamation point on this verse. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You cannot describe joy any greater than that. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I read it as having an exclamation point. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now in Luke's gospel, we're told of the Jewish shepherds visiting the newborn Jesus. And now in Matthew's gospel, we see the Gentiles coming to worship Jesus, the true king. This reminds me of Romans chapter one, when Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for its power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. God sent the angel to talk to the Jews first. The Jewish shepherds came first, then the Gentiles come first. Everything is according to plan. And notice this, that it's the pagans, the astrologers, the Gentiles who fall down and worship Jesus. The scribes and the priests are conspicuously absent. This helps us to understand that knowledge of the scriptures does not render salvation. Those scribes and those priests knew and they didn't go to worship. In the ancient world, a visit to a foreign king would not be conducted without offering gifts. We see here these magi did not offer gifts to Herod, but instead they offered their gifts to the true king, a baby. The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh were expensive commodities from their eastern country. 
Andrew Knowles tells us that the early church saw this worship of the Magi as the submission of the old gods of astrology to the true king of kings. With our hindsight, we can see these gifts can represent different facets of Jesus' life. The gifts of gold for a king, the gifts of frankincense for a priest, and the gift of myrrh to signify someone's death. If nothing else, these gifts were incredibly providential to a poor and lowly family. Mary and Joseph had nothing. When they dedicate Jesus in the temple, Mary gives an offering of a poor woman. That proves that they had nothing. There are some preachers today who will say that Jesus and his family were rich. They were rich in the spirit. They were not materially rich. Jesus himself says the son of man has no place to lay his head. What an amazing provision of expensive items to a family who had so little. And as we'll see, they're about to embark on a journey to Egypt that they needed to fund. An angel of the Lord would appear to Joseph in a dream, tell him to flee with his family to Egypt and wait there until Herod died. Matthew tells us this fulfills the prophecy of Hosea, that out of Egypt I called my son. Now we come to a passage that's troublesome, but instructive. We're gonna hear some crazy things in here, but we need to take it as instruction for us. Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time he had ascertained from the wise men, Herod had been made a fool. He'd been outwitted and outmaneuvered, but not by the Magi, by God himself. And Herod was enraged, and the only outlet for him to quench that rage was blood. Now, there probably weren't more than 20 children killed in Bethlehem. It's a very small town. Some numbers I've seen have said it may have had 300 inhabitants. So how many boys aged two years old and under are there, right? So maybe not more than 20 children were killed, but that doesn't lessen the fact that Herod sent to kill children. One loss of innocent life is too many. God loves life, values life, respects life. And what an act of perversion from Herod. He had heard the prophecy. He had read the scriptures. He had said, oh, this is the Jewish Messiah, right? He saw that, that the Messiah was gonna be born in Bethlehem. But yet he thought he could thwart God's plan. How many times have I done that in my life? How many times has God shown me what I'm supposed to do? And I say, no, I'm gonna do it my way. Thank God he humbles us. In Revelation, he, Jesus says, I rebuke and discipline those whom I love. Herod's bloodlust stemmed directly from his insecurities. He had made so many political moves in his life, how could he now abdicate his throne to a baby, right? He's king of the Jews, not Jesus, according to him. He had been so successful in his life, how could he now be humbled by a Jew? He was so powerful, how could he possibly submit or surrender? Herod's whole life had been about self-preservation, self-protection, and control, preservation of his power, protection over what he had built, and control over every facet of his life. Many of us can and should see ourselves in Herod. Our insecurities stem directly from what we think to be our identity. Herod was insecure because something, or rather someone, threatened his identity. He was king. He was powerful. He was in control. And band, you guys can come on up. John Bloom, writing for Desiring God, asks and answers a very important question about our own identities. Who do you believe has the greatest power to determine who you are and what you are worth? That is your God. 
if your identity is wrapped up in your work, if you first see yourself as middle management or as a CEO or as a principal, if you first see yourself as those things, that is your God. If your identity is wrapped up in your social standing or your money, that is your God. If your identity is wrapped up in your race or your sexual proclivity, then that is your God. John goes on to say that a feeling of insecurity is not actually a bad thing. This feeling of insecurity is an invitation from God to find your true self in him, to escape the danger of false beliefs about who we are, why we're here, what we should do, what we're worth, and that we should find peaceful refuge in what God says about all those things. We can see Herod's response to his feeling of insecurity. He tried everything to stay in power. He tried everything to stay in control because his identity was wrapped up in being a king and being political, politically devious. When we come to Christ, our, identi our identities are not modified. When we come to Christ, our identities are completely changed. Vodi Bauckham reminds us that the gospel is not something that merely sits on top of our identity. But when we come to Christ, our identity is transformed completely and we become saints in the kingdom of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. John Bloom then goes on to give us a list of ways that Christ changes our identities to eliminate our insecurities. Have we sinned and sinned greatly? Yes. But in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do we feel like orphans, strangers, and aliens? We should, if we're believers, we are strangers in a foreign land. But when we feel like orphans, strangers, and aliens, in Christ, we've been adopted by God to be his children and are now members of his household and heirs of all things with Christ. Do we, do we feel like miserable failures? I know that I do a lot. But in Christ, incredibly, every failure will work for our ultimate good. Do we feel weak and inadequate? Probably. In Christ, God loves to choose the weak and foolish things of this world because when we're weak, he promises that his grace will be sufficient for us. So much so that we can learn to boast in our weaknesses because of how they showcase his strength. Do we feel insignificant and unimportant? In Christ, we are chosen by God and purposefully assigned a unique and needed function in this body of Christ. God cares about you and Grace New Hope cares about you. This is the hope of Christmas, that Jesus took on human flesh to accomplish for us what we could not do, to live a perfect life in our place, to die the death that we owed to God and to credit us with his righteousness. He came to rescue helpless sinners. He came to bring the ones the Father had chosen to salvation. He came to show us our true identity as children of God. No longer are we strangers and aliens. No longer are we enemies with God. No longer are we fatherless orphans, but now we belong to him. And when we know these things, when we know that, he is, that we are his and that he is ours, our identity can rest in the Savior. When we know and remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are, our insecurities begin to melt away. Isaiah 52 and we read it this morning. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I know this prophecy is about the death of Jesus, but do we see without his incarnation at Christmas, we don't get to the cross. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He brought us peace and he healed us. Do we see ourselves as belonging to Jesus this Christmas? Do we see the hope that he offers? Do we identify with that baby conceived and born of the Holy Spirit? Now to answer our first overarching question, what child is this? Here's the answer. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Will y'all pray with me? Father, we come to you just grateful and thankful that we have your word, that we know these truths, that we can come to you to be comforted and healed and accepted by you. We thank you that our identity no longer rests in the world, but our identity rests in you and what you've done for us. You've welcomed us into your family. You've welcomed us into the kingdom, but we need your help to love others as you expect us to. We need your help in, in furthering sanctification in each of our lives, that we may constantly look to you through the power of the Spirit to continue to be conformed into the image of Christ. We just thank you for the incarnation and the crucifixion and death of your Son and the resurrection. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And join us again next week. I'm Myrna Bryant.